This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hi, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. We're excited today to be talking to comic store retailers, Dal Bush and Patrick Brower from Challengers Comics, the Eisner Spirit of Retailer award-winning store in Chicago. We're planning to dive deep into the world of comic stores right now. Patrick and Dell, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into comics, and what you're doing now? Uh, sure. My name is Patrick Brower, and I have been a comic reader since as far back as I can remember. I have an older brother who was reading comics before I was born, so I grew up with comics in my house and around me at all times. And I always thought it was weird to find people that didn't have comics and didn't grow up reading comics. And... Like all lifelong comic readers, I wanted to be part of the comics industry, so I went to school for illustration, and I got a degree in uh, illustration and a degree in art history, and I thought I was going to be a freelance artist and then dabble in the comics industry as soon as I graduated, but I knew I would need a part-time job to before I built up a client list and, and got my portfolio ready. So I gave myself two weeks after I graduated college to just, you know, do nothing and decompress. And whilst I was buying my new comics for the week at the store I was at, the owner had said, hey, what did we ever say about you working here? And I said, nothing. And he said, do you want to? And I said, uh, okay. And that was on a Friday. I started that next Monday. A week after that, they gave me my own store to run. And then uh, after that, I've been I've been doing that for 28 plus years. Wait, so you got a store to run a week after you started your job, a week after you had graduated from college? Yeah, it was it was a very small store. And and it was a different era for comic shops back then. I yeah. mean, it's, it, the, the amount of product coming in, it was very much a, a back-issue-centric kind of model. Like, the amount of money that store did in a week, today is a really bad Wednesday for us. But it was a different time, as Dal said. And then about uh, six, eight months into my working at that store, I hired a very young, fresh-faced lad named Dal Bush and completely corrupted him and ruined his life. Yeah, uh, I'm W. Dal Bush. I'm the other owner of Challengers Comics and Conversation in Chicago. I started in comics retail when I was 12 years old. I started working part-time with Patrick, uh, just doing kind of basic store maintenance kind of things, bagging and boarding comic books, cleaning things up, that kind of stuff, after-school work. Uh, I did comics retail for 16 years, and then quit because I was doing a night job and I wasn't really happy with the store that I was working at and I thought I'll just do this night job thing I'm, I'm done with comics retail and then within a few months I had called Patrick and said hey what do you think about opening a comic shop and he, which I never wanted to do his response was basically I have not thought about that it's a terrible idea and I said well what if we approached it this way and kind of laid out a different kind of comic shop model and he got kind of excited about it to the extent that he was willing to entertain more discussion on the topic. And within a few months, we were already like laying out a business plan, going out for loans, figuring out where the store was going to be at, scouting locations. And just a few months after that, so it was maybe a process of about eight months, maybe, uh, we went from having conversations about it to the store was open. Yeah, we started talking about it in August of 2007, and we opened our doors on March 31st, 2008. Yeah, so we uh, are coming up on our 
Eleventh. Eleventh anniversary at Challengers. And uh, as Gina said, we did win an Eisner uh, about six years ago. 2013. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Eleven is an exciting year. So what is the day-to-day of owning and running a comic store like? It's really weird to me how routine it is where every day is a very specific day, a specific group of tasks you have to accomplish, but it's the same every Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday. And we are very fortunate in Challengers that there's the two of us and we're, we're equal owners and we're both willing to put in as much work as necessary. And while there are specific tasks, like I do all of the uh, driving and the lifting of the heavy things and picking up things from different locations because I have a car and Dal doesn't. But aside from that, everything is broken down. Like Dal's strong suit is obviously uh, technologically based and uh, computer oriented. And mine is talking to people when I clearly don't like them, <laughs> which is absolutely not this podcast for the record. Uh, or you, buddy. I wasn't thinking that, but now I do. <laughs> now I'm convinced that this is all. I mean, I've been in retail for uh, over 28 years, so I'm dead inside. <laughs> uh, also, uh, Dal and I do not have families close by. Like, we're not married. We don't have children. We don't have spouses. So we can devote a lot more time to the store. And our division of labor really works out well because there's two of us. To get specific about it... Um, Comic Shop's new release days are Wednesdays. So Wednesday is both us selling new product as well as prepping for the next week's new product. We get the invoice for the next week on the week prior's Wednesday. Which I think is weird, but obviously we want it as soon as possible. So on one Wednesday, we're going to be not only selling the new product, but also starting to break down the invoice, starting to construct emails that we'll send out to subscribers, importing catalogs into our database so we can start prepping for subscriptions and stuff. Uh, that's Wednesday. Uh, Thursday, we'll send out an email to everyone on our mailing list, letting them know new books are coming out. That's supply restock day. That's when our yeah. supply manufacturer brings us the orders for bags, boards, boxes, uh, gaming, card gaming, toys, and things like that. Yeah. Friday, we'll send out emails to all of our subscribers, letting them know what subscription items might be received for them the next week. That gives them time to get back to us if they want to make any changes, additions, subtractions. Uh, at the same time, Patrick's going to be doing a lot of the uh, financial paperwork, uh, not only for the week, but also leading into the next week. Uh, Saturday and Sunday are more prep work, more behind-the-scenes stuff. Saturday is, is the one day that's mainly, let's just focus on selling. We have the most families in. Uh, we have two employees on all Saturdays, and we just want to be ready to take care of people, answer questions, direct them toward books, and really focus on the business of, of helping people. Yeah, Sunday is going to be a reorder where we'll start working on restock stuff for the week. Um, monthly, we'll do orders for new items, but for backstock, we usually do like a Sunday reorder because then we'll receive that middle of the week so we can really deal with it. Mondays are prepping the store for the next week's new books, That the books that we'll be receiving that Wednesday. We spend really a day kind of filing the older product and making space for the newer product since it can be up to a hundred different items that we're receiving in any given week. Tuesday is actually, we physically have the books. Patrick goes out, gets the boxes of product for the brand new items. We spend a day breaking that stuff down, receiving it, uh, pulling it for our subscribers, making sure everything's ready to go. So Wednesday morning, 
everything's on the shelves, everything's pulled for subscribers, everything's ready to be sold, and then we start the process all over again. And that's just the store open hours. We do a tremendous amount of work every week behind the scenes, and uh, technology is so great where we can just log into the store's computer at any given point. All of the new product ordering is done after hours from the very place that we are talking to you right now very from from this chair that i'm sitting in and the computer we're on because it's much more comfortable than doing it at the store uh we also record and one of us edits our weekly podcast after hours amongst uh, dal always does the subscriber emails on his own time yeah and we'll through the month we'll also do other special projects and things things crop up either because of something that's happened in the store or something that we need to address uh, making flyers, doing Facebook posts, doing Instagram posts, dealing with uh, subscriber requests, all that sort of stuff is a daily process that we deal with. And really the best ideas that we have always come from conversations outside of the store. So I feel like a lot of people have the idea about bookstores and comic stores that comic store owners kind of just like they walk into the store, they turn on the lights, and then their job is to kind of stand behind the counter and uh-huh. ring the register, right? So that that is not at all what you're saying is that that is not a complete picture of a comic book retailer's no. job and like perhaps not even 50% of your job. Uh, the, the cliche thing that we get from people who don't really understand the comics retail market is the, it must be great to run a comic shop. You just read comics all day. Yeah, you'll notice we didn't say anything about reading comics in that little breakdown of what no. we do every week. Although we do. Yeah, but that's after hours homework style stuff, you know, in the same way that, you know, people who work in publishing don't just sit around reading books all day. Like you have to do that after work when you're, after you've done all the things that you need to do for your job then you could maybe read a book that you have to read for your job. <laughs> I was actually going to ask about that. So, I mean, obviously, you know, part of your job is being aware of the books that you're selling. People ask for recommendations. You want to know what's in your store. But you probably physically can't read everything that you get every week. Like, how do you kind of triage that? Like, uh, is it just what you personally want to read? Is it what people are asking about? Well, once again, we're lucky that there's two of us. So uh, I am a big fan of... Letting Dal read everything I don't want to read, and then taking his that's what I'm here review. for. Oh, I got it. Okay, and, and oh. using Dal is the best at boiling things down to you know uh, this meets this kind of uh, descriptors, and I am more than willing to take those and use those uh, whenever somebody asks about a book. Yeah, one of the the main things for me is that each week I want to read the new number ones that we get, um, the first chapters or something, because that's not only going to be valuable for selling the books that week, but it basically means I understand kind of the core concept of everything we're selling. So if someone comes in and says, hey, I want to start reading this nine-volume graphic novel series, I don't have to tell them what happened in volume seven. I need to tell them what happens in the first chapter of volume one because that's the story they're going to be reading. So if I can at least encapsulate that part of it, that'll sell them the rest of the series, like it or dislike it. That's up to the book at that point. It's not up to me to sell them on Volume 3 and Volume 4 and Volume 5. But I imagine that your personal taste does play into it as far as what books you're going to have as, say, staff features or who you're going to have as uh, people who are uh, guests in the store doing events, which book you're featuring at the top of your subscriber e-newsletter. Sure. I mean, uh, we do have varied tastes. That's that's true. Uh, for example, the book Infidel that came out from Image Comics uh, last year, and it, it got collected in time for Christmas, 
I loved it. It's an urban haunted house horror story, and horror is not Dal's genre at all. Not really. So did you even read the first issue? I read the first issue, again, okay. just to get a, a feel for what the book was going to be like and kind of what the level of craft was. And, and then, then you were like, this is not my thing at all. Oh, for right. sure, yeah. I mean, it's like, to, to be blunt about it, there's only so many hours in the week. Um, so if I have to read all the first issues, anything after that, is mostly what I'm personally enjoying or what I feel like I need to, to really keep up on for the business. Uh, for example, there was a book two weeks ago where Dal said, holy cow, it's issue three, and I'm still reading it by choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Outer Darkness from Image, uh, the new John Lehman book that he's doing with Afu-chan, it's really good. It's a good mix of like sci-fi, but with like a, a horror vibe to it. Like If they made an, a Star Trek series off of the Event Horizon movie, like, that's kind of what what they're trying to do with it. I see you doing the this meets that pitch for us right here in this podcast. We, see? We, that's how good he is We it? don't have two hours for me to describe every book in detail. <laughs> I'll give you the elevator pitch. So can you kind of run us through kind of more in detail what a typical day might be like? Like, you kind of gave us the overview, but it sounds like... You're getting up in the morning. Do you go into the store? Do you do work from home first? Like, do you have employees? Do they open for you? Do you have employees every day? Like, do you get a lunch break? We don't get lunch breaks. We just eat at the store. We do have a back room, but it's really just for stuff, not for people. I am a big fan of not doing anything for the store between the time I wake up and the time I get to the store. But that is a very small window, um, and I know that uh, Dal frequently does stuff up until the time he's leaving to go to work. Yeah, although, like, I I, I try to, to make sure I'm structuring my day so that when I'm working, a day that I'm working, I do as much as I can at the store, and then I'll do other things on days off from home. Sure. Uh, Wednesday morning conversations before the store opens usually goes, hey, did you look at this week's invoice? And I'll say... No, I'm going to be looking at it all day today. I'm not going to look at it before I get in. Unless it's I'm worried about it being a very big bill or if I'm worried about money being tight, then I will look at it the second it goes up at 4 a.m. just to make sure <laughs> uh, everything is okay. Uh, we do have employees, but not every day. Some of them have keys. Some of them don't. Uh, we usually, Dal and I, open and or close every day. Save for Thursdays. Thursdays we both have off. We have uh, an employee, Kent, who handles Thursdays by himself. Uh, it was a day that we had uh, a longtime friend of ours who was in the retail community started to work with us, and, and he was working with us on Wednesdays, but Wednesdays were not busy enough for three people. So we decided in an effort to keep him on, we just gave him Thursdays. And then when he moved on, we're like, oh, we like having Thursdays off. Let's get somebody else to do them yeah there's definitely things where, where it's been an advantage for both of us to have the same day off so that if we need to do like an off-site thing or if we need to run an errand for the store or if we need to, to do something we don't have to worry about like the day being covered it's already covered yeah and that's a day we like to either visit other stores or uh go to a supply run go to suppliers that aren't close to us so we can take a couple hour car ride out for and, and see that but going back to the day-to-day -day of the store once the store is open you have to be ready for anything because as much as we give ourselves specific tasks on every day, we're there to sell comics. So if somebody comes in and has a million questions, our job first and foremost is to answer those questions. It's not to worry about finishing the financial spreadsheets. It's not to worry about paying our taxes. It's to worry about giving them the best possible service they can get. 
and everything else has to wait. Yeah, the tasks we do for a given day usually are just done around the edges of helping people. So if the store is empty, great, you can get a bunch of stuff done. If there's a bunch of people in the store, nothing's going to get done for a little while because everybody's going to need help. So I assume you have like a weird, complicated relationship with the busyness of your own store. Because in theory, you do want customers, but also they're annoying and they keep you from... Doing your taxes. Doing your work. <laughs> I can't uh-huh. I can't tell you how many times someone will come in, I'm in the middle of a project, and I just think, come on, I need to finish this. Yeah. But no, you, you're, your project is to make your store better so people come and spend money. They're doing that right now. Focus on them. Yeah, one of the advantages of, of having such a weird routine and, and both of us doing this for as long as we have is that we know instinctively when the busy periods are going to be and when the dull periods are going to be. So we can kind of plan towards this part of the day. I'm really sure we're only going to see a few people an hour so I can do this project. But at this point in the day, it's going to be super busy. So I better make sure that I'm ready to go. We have such a specific financial goal each week that we have calculated based off of all the years we've been open. And it's amazing to me how we can say, okay, we'll do this much on this day, this much on, you know, Tuesdays are our slowest day of the week. And they'll do like an eighth of a Wednesday. And Wednesdays always do, like, this specific dollar amount as a minimum, always, regardless of the number of people that come in, mm-hmm. except today when it was uh, minus 46 with the wind chill in Chicago. Yes, yeah, not um, home now. But we, we still did, uh, we did half of a normal Wednesday business today with only a third of the people yeah. coming in. But the people who came in clearly wanted to spend some money. Um, I'll, I'll give you a hyper-specific example. Like, Sundays were open from 11 to 5. I work there by myself. 11 to noon, kind of dead. A couple people are going to come in. Noon to 2, busy. 2 to 3, not that busy. 3 to 4, busy again. 4 to 5, basically a ghost town. It's been this way for years, so I know exactly what projects I need to do behind the counter so I can be there for people's questions and what projects like if I have to be on the floor doing something it's going to be between 11 and noon or between like two and three like it's that's kind of my period where I can get out from behind the counter but the second we get used to a routine and the second we say okay you know Thursday do this much Friday is going to be great Saturday will be less Sunday will be great as soon as we say that out loud it switches then Sunday does less and Saturday does better, and then it stays that way for a while. Then we say, oh, I guess Saturday is a new Sunday. Then because we said it, it changes again. The dollar amount stays constant, but it's such a weird, like, oh, it'll flip-flop which day is busy just because we vocalized it. Uh, But as far as uh, everything else, we do try to, like, I do try to get all the bills paid and all of the scheduling done Fridays while I'm at the store. And... As with anything where you rely on other people, there's always a lag of waiting for responses, whether it be text or email or uh, Gchat or what have you. You're only available to to use the information you have in front of you, but we try to to get all that stuff done during store hours. Uh, With the technological age that we live in, employees and customers have access to us 24 hours a day, it seems. And I don't mean direct access per se, but... People can email in requests or uh, Facebook or Skype or what have you. All these different ways people ask us for things. I actually turned off the Facebook Messenger for the store because I was tired of questions in the middle of the night saying, Hey, do you have Captain America number 9? I don't know, man. It's 3 a.m. We're not, we're not open. And I could, I could log into the system and check the quantities to see if we have it. 
I don't want to because it's 3 a.m. Yeah, so you have better things to do, like be asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, for some reason, the idea of a, a Facebook message bothers me so much more than an email. Like, if I get an email for that, I can just mark it as unread, and I'll see it when I go in the next morning and take care of it then. But uh, the feigned urgency of a Facebook message just got so almost insulting that I thought, no, I don't want this anymore. Most of the questions people would ask were answerable via the About Us section on our page or anything else, or just people saying, what are your hours on Thursday? It's like, you made it to this page, just look in the About Us section. It tells you all that information. So I got tired of of questions they could have found an answer for somewhere else. So I turned off the messaging to that. (laughs) And I do not regret it. Uh Okay, so I want to shift gears a little. This podcast is nominally about authors and how they can be better at being authors. So I have a few questions about authors and comic stores and working together. The first of which is, what are ways that you work with authors to promote graphic novels or pamphlet comics? In the comics industry now, it's very common to get cold emails from creators and a lot of it is the publishers giving their mailing lists to creators and we get uh, PDFs and introduction emails and, and a lot of hey this is who I am this is the book I have coming out here's a link to it if you want uh, and that's great we love that the best thing anyone in a creative capacity can do for us is give us access to your product before we have to close orders on it it doesn't help if you say, hey, this is coming out next week. Here's a here's a copy of it. But if you let us read your comic or your book before we have to order it, we have a way better idea of who we can sell it to and what it's going to be about. And nine times out of ten, we'll say, oh, this person wants to work with us. We'll go out of our way to support this book. And also, if we can tell it's a personal email versus a mass email, a lot of times it can't be that. Obviously, there's just, just you know, not enough hours a day. But we really appreciate it when they mention us by name. Call out your Eisner Spirit of Retailer Award. Exactly. Uh, the way we promote stuff, some of it's going to be in, in weekly emails where if we're excited about a new book or a new graphic novel or a comic book that's coming out, we'll put that in our, our email to subscribers, letting them know, hey, this thing is coming out this week. Here's what it's about. You might be interested in it. Once a month when the new previews catalog comes out, um, that's the main way that most comic shops order new product, we'll send that out to our subscribers and we'll spotlight maybe a half dozen to a dozen books over the month that we're excited about that we think maybe deserve a special look beyond everything else that's in the catalog. Um, so we'll, we'll hit people a few different ways through the month when that stuff is coming out. But for most comic shops, i, I got to assume the main way that they're promoting work to their customers is just putting it in people's hands. Um, someone's at the register and you go, hey, you're getting this book. There's this new thing that came out you may want to take a look at. Or, oh, you like this author. They've got this new book coming up. Maybe you want to pre-order it. Uh, it's very one-on-one, person-to-person kind of promotion. I still, to this day, feel like that has the most success. Uh, more than anything else. People don't read emails. Uh, no one's looking at your website. But if you can be there with them in the moment and say, hey, I read this comic... I liked it a lot. You may want to take a look at it. I feel like that has the most uh, success that we've had for anything we do in promotion. Right now we have the three different call-outs on our front counter of three upcoming books that all come out in March that we were given PDF copies of that I really, really liked and wanted to try to 
do a little bit more. And if we're excited about a book, we'll talk about it on our podcast. But, you know, how many people who shop with us listen to that? We have so many other retailers and people that don't shop with us who find value in it listen to it. But that's not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to sell more books on our store. But uh, to get back to initially what you asked about how can we work with authors to promote the books, tell us about it ahead of time. Tell us who you think it's for and tell us what kind of PR you're going to be doing to get maybe people coming in and asking us about it ahead of time. You said that it's super useful for authors to tell you early um, what books they have coming out, give you access to PDFs of their books. But, you know, if you have... 50 authors emailing you in February to talk about books that are coming out in April. How do you decide which ones are are best? Which ones are right for you? It's a little easier for us because those are comics and we can get through those a lot faster. So it's yeah. not inconceivable we could read 50 comics over the span of the month, oh. to, aside from the, the ones we have in, in front of us yeah. in our hands. Although, to be accurate, I, some of this is... is Maybe some differences between the mainstream element of the comics industry where it's, it's built around, you know, Marvel and DC and Dark Horse and Image and those publishers rather than the larger book trade. Um, they don't send out PDFs. Uh, Marvel sends out uh, nothing. Uh, DC Comics, the, the number two publisher in North American superhero comics, uh, sends out maybe two PDFs a month if they feel like it. And even then, they might be incomplete or you know lacking dialogue or so heavily watermark that you can't even read them uh image comics does a little better um in that most of their number one issues will have uh promo pdfs but that's not a guarantee dark horse rarely does it idw does it sometimes boom does it pretty consistently so over the month even if you're talking about like the top 10 publishers in the the diamond listings i doubt we're given more than two dozen books to read over the month. We did just get an email from Oni, which is their whole graphic novel output for the first quarter, which is the first time they've done something like that. And I think it's uh, valuable, but it is a lot at one time. So I've been very slow to get through it. Yeah. And the things like, you know, uh, galleys, where it's like, here's a physical copy of the book that you can read through two to six or whatever months before it comes out. I, comics publishers do not do that. Uh, DC did it for their ink and zoom stuff because they have to for the book trade, not because they, they suddenly realized the value of it for comic shops, but because a completely different marketplace was like, you have to do it this way. So yeah, I mean, like stuff that Marvel publishes, Marvel, the number one comics publisher in North American superhero publishing. Uh, we read that stuff when we unpack it out of the box and we have to read it right away because people are going to come in Wednesday saying, I have questions about this. So the the we have not yet had the problem where we've gotten too much preview material to be able to get through in a month. For and example, when we do, it's only because like for a second, send us out this season's worth of stuff, which are great, and we're not used to that. We're not used to getting a stack of books from a publisher. Uh, for example, next week there's a Daredevil number one from Marvel, uh, a major character with a brand new creative team and a, a well-known writer and artist on the book and the this is the sum total of the solicitation for that book classified that's how we ordered it that's we it. had to order that book with that word as our descriptor four chapters ordered non-returnable they told us literally nothing about it they told us the creative team they showed us the cover that's it good luck so probably googling and finding an interview with the creator would tell you more than the solicitation did 
Yeah, it's gotten. We I think we talked about this recently on our podcast. Uh, Contest of Challengers available on iTunes, Spotify. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> All um, the places where podcasts are not sold. But we talked about the fact that it's it's ridiculous that um, creative talent at major publishers who are doing work for hire work on corporately owned characters are the ones who are expected to be getting out to retailers what the story is about for the book that people are going to be buying. Mm-hmm. The, it, that's that should be the last thing they have to do. It should be. The main thing that you expect when you're working for a company like Marvel or DC is that Marvel and DC will tell people what book this is, but instead the creators have to do it. And that's insane to me. Literally, a creator was promoting a book on Twitter saying, I would have thought that Marvel would have promoted this for me, but they're not going to. So, hey, everybody, my new book is out this week. You can get it here. That kind of thing. Yeah, crazy. So you mentioned for Second and Oni, and I'm sure, you know, other obviously other graphic novel publishers like who are you talking to at those publishers and like what kind of stuff are they sending you with oni we're talking to everybody because we're friends with them (laughs) with first second we used to have a pretty great contact that we we were had a good relationship with yeah what happened to her uh people (laughs) move on so weird so weird uh who do do we talk to now you know that molly ellis has been fantastic with us they've done a great job with, with some upcoming events and some past events. Idlewise emails with uh, all sorts of availability of creators and galleys and books. Uh, beyond the tree line, I want to say, is what it's... Uh, yeah, so if people haven't heard of Edelweiss and Beyond the Tree Line, what are these mysterious retail-focused internet beings? First of all, thank you for so delicately correcting my pronunciation. Anytime. We do not use them to anywhere near their capabilities. And uh, for us, it is a, a portal connecting us to publishing and creatives, specifically if we wanted to try to set up an author event they'll list the publication schedules of, of different publishers and say thing basically like, who are you interested in? Who do you want to possibly do an event with? And then they see if they're a tour is scheduled or if they could work it out on their end. So it's like an online catalog with information about books and preview PDFs that also functions as a kind of like tour hub as well. Yeah, I've actually never heard of these things, so I also don't know. Gina just described it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Gina. The usefulness of, of that portal to us is not uh, as great as it should be, mostly because it's something we're, we're not used to. It's not. It's so not a part of the comics publishing uh, element that we usually see that we don't make it a part of our routine like we probably should. It's the sort of thing that a publisher will mention it or, or provide a link, and it's like, oh my god, there's all this information, and then we forget about it for another seven, eight months. It's interesting because, I mean, Edelweiss provides the catalog in a very kind of seasonal roll-up sort of way. So it's like four or five months all at a time, all the books at once with all of the content. And so if you're not kind of like looking through it on a publisher-by-publisher category basis to do a like, okay, let's do this like looking ahead for the next seven months from now, it cannot be as compatible with your ordering comics every week. Like for us, and it's always a little surprising because we'll deal with other distributors besides Diamond, like Baker and Taylor. And it can be a little eye-opening sometimes when we can see that they're taking pre-orders for a book that Diamond hasn't even solicited yet because Baker and Taylor will deal with stuff that's coming out six, eight, 12 months from now. And Diamond Comics and, and really the comic shop market 
is really built around a maximum of like two months from now. And usually anywhere from one to three weeks is where people are locking in orders or, or figuring out order numbers. So we're used to stuff that's, that's more immediate and seeing something where it's like, this is coming out in seven months. It almost feels like a fairy tale. Like it's not a real thing. <laughs> yeah. So we don't really yeah. pay that much attention to it. Like, oh, sure it is. Uh huh. We're like, yeah. how do they know? <laughs> that's way too far away. For anybody who's specifically interested, if it's above the tree line.com, that'll give you way more information than we did. And if anyone's listening to this episode and wondering what a distributor is and how comic stores work with them, we will do an episode about that. Yes, but can you talk about them from the comic shop perspective? Uh, sure. Short version is a publisher sells to a distributor. The distributor offers to comic shop accounts any number of publishers. You can order in any quantity you want. And then that kind of aggregated order comes in on a regular basis. Uh, for comic shops, it's usually every Wednesday is a new release day. So every week there's new issues, new graphic novels, new toys, new T-shirts, new what have you. And the comics industry only really has one distributor, which is Diamond Comics, and they are the sole source for publishers like Marvel Comics, DC Comics, Image Comics, you know, all the major ones. So if you don't have a Diamond account and you are a purely a comic store, you're not going to be able to survive for the most part. Yeah, and yet inexplicably, Diamond is not considered a monopoly. Yeah, there's a, Fun story. a, a loophole. Somebody explained it to me, and it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So do you have other distributors that you work with for other kinds of books? We certainly do. And, and um, a lot of our, our buying is done as direct as possible. Uh, last year, we bought from 113 different sources. Oh, gee. That includes individual creators who we know, people that we buy from at shows. Like if we're at uh, C2E2, which is the Chicago Comic and Entertainment Expo, and there are a lot of publishers and a lot of creators and, and people exhibiting Artist Alley. I mean, we have a lot of access to a lot of people in that show. So we could buy from 20 different people over the span of that day that were there. That counts as 20 different accounts as far as my record keeping goes. So a lot of it is localized one-on-one. But we do use uh, other sources as either a backup, because unfortunately, especially a lot of book trade things and a lot of really great all-ages graphic novels Diamond Comics does not keep in stock. So we frequently order from Baker and Taylor because they seem to have everything that Diamond has minus the single issues of comics. So they are a good backup for us. Unfortunately, our discount is not as good with them as and it's not as high for us as it is with Diamond, otherwise we'd want to do everything with Baker and Taylor because they get it out so quick. Yeah, it's the two distributors that, that we use primarily, Diamond and Baker and Taylor, um, are interesting in that they're kind of the exact opposite of each other. In that Diamond makes sure that, that the superhero product, the the main, again, uh, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, Dark Horse, Image, Boom, IDW, that stuff is coming out exactly on the release date, nationwide, synchronized. It's ready to go. Um, but the stuff that's outside of that, where it's it's from major book publishers, you kind of get it whenever. Um, and yet Baker and Taylor is the opposite, where that stuff, you're getting it, you know, day and date. They're making sure it's in your store before the release date. It's ready to go. But if it's, you know, you need a Marvel graphic novel, it's like, well, maybe a week from now, two weeks. I don't know. We'll see. It feels 
like they've prioritized completely different product lines, which is why we use both of them so they can complement each other. That all totally makes sense. Thank you for unpacking the exciting world of comics distribution for us. <laughs> Let, let's shift now into talking a little about author events. If an author would like to do some sort of event in your store, what should they do? When should this process start? Like how far away from the event that they want to have should they be getting in touch with you? Well, the first thing they should do is just ask us. That's uh, really how easy it is. Three months is where we like to start planning things for. Uh, anything before that is almost too early, and anything after that seems like we don't have enough time to fully promote it. And it takes constant repetition for people to remember a thing is happening. You can't just say one time you have it. So if we're able to tell people over and over and over leading up to it, it, it has a better chance of being a thing that they think, oh, we, we want to get to this. Yeah, there's got to be a sign on our front counter for six weeks. There's got to be eight weeks of emails that are going out where that's part of the message. That's got to be up on our Facebook for two months before the event starts, that kind of thing. Yeah, so it's not helpful to email like the week before to be like, hey, can I come in and do something? You, you can email. We can't guarantee anything at that point. And we're almost <laughs> always going to say, yeah, but no one's going to show up. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a problem we have, and I, I think it's a Chicago problem, is that there are so many great bookstores and, and good comic stores, and they all of them have events, and there's so many things to do in the city that I think Chicago has uh, an embarrassment of riches as far as events go, but everyone is so jaded to them, they're like, oh, I'll get the next one, and turnout to events has been down so low recently and, and we there's stores in like Maryland that can have the exact same creators we do and have people lining up overnight to meet these people and we'll get like eight people in yeah it, it's uh it's just for a while we thought it was us and we weren't reaching people it's just that for some reason Chicago doesn't care and it's so hard to make them care. And, and when you think you have a surefire author that like people are going to love, years ago we had Greg Hurwitz in because he was writing a Marvel comic, Moon Knight, but he also is a well-known fiction author, uh, a bestseller. And not only did we have Greg Hurwitz coming in, we had uh, a full-color interview with him in the Sunday book edition of the Chicago Sun-Times where he promoted the event. And he was going to do a reading and a signing, and uh, we paid to bring him in. We don't pay creators to come in, but if it's our idea, we'll pay their travel and their hotel and things like that. We had five people for Greg Hurwitz. We thought he was going to be a much bigger deal than that. That's both sad and reassuring as somebody who's also done author events with a wildly varying number of people showing up to them. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll, we can have people that we don't even know who just say, hey, can we do a signing at your store? And we're like, yeah, sure. And they bring out people in droves, you know, family members, yeah. friends, whatever. Honestly, that's like some of our best and most profitable signings are someone who isn't necessarily famous, but 40 of their friends will come out to their signing. And it's like, great, those 40 people are going to buy a book. They're gonna, they've never been to the store before, so they might buy other stuff. This is great. We've long since stopped thinking of signings as a way to get people into the store who've never been there before. And maybe we'll, we'll turn them to our side and they'll be like, oh, my God, this store is so great. <laughs> like, like, they'll come in, they'll say, oh, this store is so great. And then we'll maybe see them at the next big event we have. Yeah. 
like it, it doesn't translate into return sales. <laughs> but to answer your question, if an author just contacts us, sure. If they're going to be in Chicago, great. If they're part of a tour, we'll be on a stop. Uh, the problem we have more, though, is programming. And a lot of authors want to do more than just sit behind a table and sign books. But it's so hard to get people to come out for a lecture or for a Q&A. Uh, again, I think it's a Chicago thing of, oh, your event starts at 7? Okay, I'll stroll around 8.30. Like, nobody wants to be on time. And if you schedule a Q&A for 7 o'clock, people will come in at, like, 7.40 and be like, oh, did I miss it? Yeah. Um, speaking specifically about comic shops and events, I I think it's, and, and maybe this is just us, but I feel like it's, it's pretty common for comic shops, we don't get a ton of requests from people looking to do signings. Uh, that's usually not how it works. So if someone contacts a comic shop and says, hey, I've got a book that you guys can sell, and parenthetically, that's kind of key, is it has to be something that the comic shop can actually sell, or they're really less likely to want to host somebody for an event if they can't make any money off of it. They're almost always going to say yes if it's not a conflict with some other event. Comic shops love doing these events because we don't get the chance to do as many of them as we would like. Comics publishers do not do book tours for people. They do not send creators around the country to, to big and small shops to promote work. So it's usually a comic shop having to contact a creator directly and say, we love this book, we want to promote it, we think it would be successful for us if you came in and did a signing, and then working out with the creator that way. So any creator who, who approaches a store is already basically going to be a yes from us just because they reached out to us. So is it usually creators contacting you or is it their publicists? Who are you usually talking to for these things? It's pretty much always just the creator themselves. No one who's at a publicist level that I can think of has really approached us. Specifically for the comics industry, not not the book trade, not like we're talking, uh, again, Marvel DC image here. Yeah, the only time we've been approached by a publisher instead of like the actual creator themselves looking to promote their work uh, has been people outside the mainstream superhero publishers. So again, like for a second, Gina was one of the few professional people who's high up in a company who said, Hey, we got a book tour. Do you want to be a part of it? Again, we're, we're not used to that. So of course we're going to say yes. And we're always going to say yes to Gina because Gina's great at her job. This is so interesting because I had a whole conversation with my editor and uh, later on my publicist about this because I was talking about doing promotion for my own book and I was asking about things I could do. And I mentioned like, oh, I was thinking about sending out postcards or doing this. And initially they were like, why would like a prose author contacting a bunch of bookstores is super weird a lot of the time. Like you wouldn't do that. Whereas like, I feel like you guys are basically lining up with my thought was that comic bookstores are much more used to dealing directly with creators than like a prose bookstore is. We'll occasionally talk to people at publishers and they'll, they'll want to know, you know, how can they be doing things differently and how can they better promote their books? And the thing that we've mentioned to a few of them is like, maybe try and do something where it's like a, a nationwide tour, like where you hit people in different markets, you know, comic stores might want to work with you to, to offset some of the costs. But the profit margins in comics are so low that it's just not feasible for them to do that, to, to tour anybody, really. <laughs> so Dark Horse was publishing the uh, the sequel to Fight Club as a comic book. And we were approached by Dark Horse. Uh, at first, it was uh, the, the email was, was leading us to think uh, Chuck Palahniuk would be doing a signing at our store for the Fight Club comic book. 
And we're like, oh my God, that would be huge. We, we would jump on that. What do we need to do? What they were asking us to do was buy from them, or commission, I guess, a certain number of, of variant covers of Fight Club 2 number one that would have our logo on it that would go in, in the bag of stuff that people would get at a completely different offsite event that Chuck Palahniuk would be doing a signing for. Ah, uh, far away. For not even Fight Club 2, for a completely different book he was promoting that they were hoping that they could kind of draft off of. That's very weird. Fascinating. Uh-huh. We did not go for that, by the way. We said no thank you. But we could have gotten a fake severed limb signed by him to hang up on the store. Thanks, but no thanks. Done, had we done it. <laughs> Who wouldn't want that? Right? Yeah. Thanks, but no yeah. thanks. So you mentioned usually when you're doing an author event for a new book with an author, you are not paying the author for the event. The The author's gratification comes out of their books being sold at the event and the chance to you know celebrate their new book coming out rather than having a store pay them money to do an event there. And that's probably true unless it's an author that's like maybe someone like Chuck Palahniuk, maybe someone like Bill Gaiman, <laughs> like these people who are kind of like really, really big deals. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. Uh, and you're also making your money off of selling books. So authors don't need to provide books. They don't need to kind of come with their whole back catalog. Uh, we had an experience once. <laughs> Dal's already laughing because he knows exactly the story. Oh, golly. I, was, I hope we uh, get to tell this one. I'm going to make this brief. We had uh, a creator reach out to us and say that uh, he and his wife uh, were doing a tour for separate projects. They're both creatives in the comics industry, and they were touring on different things. And could their Chicago stop be a Challengers? And uh, the bitter irony to this is that we had reached out to the wife years ago to do an event and she agreed and we'd ordered a bunch of product and we were trying to make it a big deal event we were younger and and more way more optimistic than hadn't been beaten down by the retail mm -hmm. back then and when it came time to booking travel she just ghosted us no we never heard from her again yep until this tour yeah. years later and and we carried both of their books from from different publishers and so you know when they approached us we're like well let's let bygones be bygones yeah, that, that's fine you know it's been years things happen let's move forward with this let's let's make it work so we said yes sure and uh we wanted to be as professional as possible so we ordered a ton of their books to make it worthwhile and that we were the last stop of their tour and uh it turns out that they brought all their own product to sell, which, if that is a discussion we have ahead of time, that is 100% fine. But it wasn't, so we bought all this stuff, and they had all their own stuff, which is how they were making money for their tour, which we understand, but it was not communicated to us. And the reaction of us having our own product was not received well, even though I immediately took all of our product off the table and took a massive financial hit to make their experience better. Oh, no. And it, it became a, oh, gosh, I guess we forgot to tell you. You know, we told everybody else we were bringing our own books. Huh. So it sounds like it's probably better if an author is trying to directly arrange an event with you for them to ask all the possible questions, even if they feel like they might be stupid questions, than to... There are no stupid questions in this in this situation. <laughs> this is killing me also because aren't a lot of comics orders non-returnable? 
Oh, yeah, they're all non-returnable. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. For people who are listening who don't know what that means, can you briefly explain what non-returnable means or why some things are or aren't? When we buy our product to resell in the stores, we own it. It's ours forever until we sell it. It is common in bookstores that what they cannot sell after a certain amount of time, they can return it, whether it be for their money back or credit toward future product. Even if there's a, a restocking fee where they get a little bit less back than they gave, bookstores can usually return their books. Comic stores cannot. Everything we buy is ours forever. The, the trade-off for comics distributors and to comic shops is that while we're ordering non-returnable, we get a much higher discount. We have a much higher profit margin on comics and graphic novels than if we'd ordered them through a returnable distributor. That's the trade-off. You can either have returnability or a higher discount. And it's a much longer discussion about kind of how the market that supported high discount non-returnable merchandise has maybe changed in the last 20 years. But really, that's just the reality of the market right now, is that when we're ordering stuff from Diamond, again, the main comics distributor for comic shops in North America, it's non-returnable. Uh, for comic books, we call it the direct market now because in the past, it used to be the newsstand market, which was literally newsstands or drugstores or grocery stores, little spinner racks where somebody would come in, stock those books, then come in and take those out and replace them, and it was less of a financial risk for those stores. That was the newsstand market. The direct market meant we are selling direct to you and you are the end customer they're yours. Yeah, and, and a real tiny tidbit. The the newsstand market used to be basically you had X amount of spots and you were ordering 200 comic books. And the 200 comic books you would get from, from your newsstand distributor would be whatever they felt like giving you, however many of whatever. But with the direct market, you as a store were able to say, I want 15 copies of Batman. I want 20 copies of Spider-Man. And you could try and work towards making it more profitable by getting the good books and selling more of them. But the point is that when this system was set in place... It was a very different time, and it's never changed in 46 years, yep. whatever whatever it has been. There are more discussions now amongst comic shop owners about moving away from high-discount, non-returnable merchandise than I think I've ever seen before. I had no idea about a lot of this, so thank you for explaining this to me. It's very interesting. I've actually never had anybody explain direct market to me in these terms, so yeah. thank you. Think of the book market, but dumber. <laughs> <laughs> that I've heard before. Okay. So clearly asking all the questions in your author events setup email is a good tip uh, that can prevent tragedies like the one you kindly detailed to us. Um, are there other things that authors should know? or things that they should avoid when uh, they is, are trying to get comic stores either to do events or feature their books or to like them? Uh, this is going to sound dumb, but I, I actually have to say this because it's happened a few times. If it is not a product I can sell in my store, I don't feel like promoting it. Uh, I don't want to do an event for someone whose only product is a Kindle book. That's fair. Or if it's a prose horror anthology like no that's not what we do yeah know your market i guess like if you're just cold calling a store basically understand what they do like it you don't have to have shopped there normally but have an awareness of like if this is a comic shop i don't necessarily want to do a promotion for a you know prose novel about a, a murder mystery that happens in a record shop or something like that's i, I can't do anything with that that's not our market that's not who shops at our store. however i do want to read that uh-huh. I will send you a galley. Okay. <laughs> uh, when we do an event, we're looking at, we're looking at it as, as trying to achieve two goals. We're trying to get 
our customers interested in your product, but we're trying to get your fans interested in our store at the same time. So we are very hopeful that each creator does half of the marketing for us because we each reach different people. You know, there's a, a wonderful overlap of your fans who already shop with us, but we want to try to reach more than that, and we want to try to expose people that don't know you to your work at the same time. So besides uh, organizing events with you well, is are there things that authors can do that don't involve interacting with you where you kind of look at their behavior and you say, uh, like, I don't, I don't know if I want to promote the books of someone who did that sort of thing. Well, I mean, recent things in the comics industry don't have morally reprehensible behavior that's get ca- <laughs> gets called out and makes us immediately pull all your books off our shelves, yeah, which just happened. Thank goodness. So that's good to know, too. Like, it sounds like you're on the internet and you're paying attention to what's going on in, in the industry, as are many retailers. And so, sometimes too much. People's behavior there can affect your decisions about buying and promoting their books. Yeah, I, hosting an event can a, a lot of times just feel like, I think to people, that it's, it's an endorsement. So we want to make sure that the event that's going to happen with the person, whatever the book is, whatever the event is going to be reflects well on us because we don't want to kind of tarnish what we've done and the relationships we have with our customers for somebody else. So it has to be additive. It has to be something where it can work together, where it makes sense for our store, where it makes sense to our customers. If it's something that's, that's subtractive, if it's someone who is a drag on what we're doing, if, if it's going to make people angry that we're doing it, we don't want to do it. There's a creator who just reached out to us about doing an event at the store during Pride Month. And uh, he's a creator and also a publisher. And all of his work is very explicitly sexualized gay comics, which we don't have a problem with as a thing. But to have him in the store signing on a weekend when we have a bunch of families in, we have to make sure that he is delicate in his presentation and just doesn't have things laid out where anybody can pick up like he has to be able to market to potential fans without exposing minors to his material yeah kind of thing explicit content when it's on the cover is something where we have to have a different discussion about when that event takes place that's interesting because it's sort of like can you trust him to be discreet? Which, I mean, it's the same thing anybody's tabling at conventions. It's the same issue. of like, yeah. Like, lots of conventions are all-ages conventions that some individual tables will have not kid-friendly material. And it's kind of like, are you making an effort to make sure somebody's eight-year-old doesn't pick your book up? So you talked a little in the answer to this question about work with explicitly erotic material. Are there other genres or age categories that you treat differently, either by reading them differently or promoting them differently or reaching out to different people when you hear about them and get them in your store and plan to, you know, get them out to the right readers? Uh, In Challengers, we have a 400 square foot room we call Sidekicks, which is our all ages room. And it's where the majority of our younger readers material goes. And it's the best because that room has the highest level of return and excitement and the kids know that it's for them and they take ownership of it. I Uh, I don't know if the people listening know this, but this middle grade thing, (laughs) real deal, 
No, everyone knows. You think it's going it's Every, to catch everybody on? Everybody knows. Everybody yeah. knows right now. 8 to 12-year-olds um, love comics. They really do. Here's the weird thing, though, and we've had this, this weird experience with people. Like, there's older comic fans that'll come in and look at, at the stuff that we have in Sidekicks, and they're looking for, you know, you know, superhero comics, but for kids. And we have to kind of tell them, honestly, a lot of the kids that are reading 8 to 12-year-old stuff, that's not what they're interested in. Like, they love comics, but they don't necessarily love superhero comics. Like, that's not their way in. I was just on a panel with somebody who has been trying really, really hard to get his, like, eight-year-old daughter to read superhero comics, and she mostly wants to read Raina's books. Sure. And But I think he got her to read, like, Squirrel Girl. Okay, that that's a good that's a good gap to bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it, it was very funny because, like, I'm coming from the graphic novel side, so, like, I just don't really think about this, but he's, like, an, an old-school, hardcore superhero comics guy. It was, like, breaking his heart that he couldn't bridge this gap <laughs> between sure. generations. Marvel has started reformatting their, like, middle grade and, like, early teen stuff into the... the smaller graphic novel format like you know scholastic and for a second where it's it's emulating kind of that model so that kids can feel like i guess you know it's just moving from one to the other it's not different kinds of comic books it's all the same thing so we'll see if that's successful because they're leading the way with um, ms marvel ms squirrel marvel girl. squirrel girl marvel moon rising girl. moon girl uh wasp they're a lot of their their uh female teen characters I'll, it'll be interesting to see how those do. Um, so if there are authors that are local to you in Chicago, and maybe they don't have a book out today or this year, but they're like, Challenges is my local store. They're so great. How do they build up a relationship with you? So when their book does come out, you already know about them and think they're great too. Well, it's just as easy them coming in to say hi or emailing us and, and uh, just introducing themselves and keeping us aware of, uh, of their book. Because if they say, oh, I have a book coming out in six months, I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> uh, if, if there's someone I don't know and we're only meeting that first time, uh, reminders help. And uh, you had, uh, Ali, you mentioned about uh, sending postcards or things like we postcards or bookmarks we'll give out all the time. Sure. Uh, posters we don't use. We don't put posters up in our store because we have a specific visual aesthetic that, that doesn't work for us. Uh, so whenever someone's like, hey, I'll send you some signed posters, we're like, ah, if you want to, we're just going to give them away. We're not going to put them up. Uh, so someone's going to be happy, but it's not going to give you the exposure that you think it's going to. But just keeping a relationship with us is all you need or just reminding us. There's plenty of people that come in and say, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to make my own graphic novel someday or, you know, I hope to do this. And we always say, great, keep us in mind when it comes out. Let us know when it's out. And uh, there's an online school called Comics Experience that uh, a guy named Andy Schmidt is in charge of. And many years ago, I was a, a guest speaker for just a class of talking about how comic stores treat indie creators and and local creators cold calling stores and i i ended with uh you know and hey if you you guys went when you have something coming out let me know and three or four years later somebody did somebody emailed me and said hey I, you were you talked to me at this class here's this book i have coming out from boom you know it, like he wasn't local he wasn't trying to do a signing but he just wanted to say you told me to tell you when i'm doing it i'm doing it and and it was great it was great that he did that and it was good to see somebody following through like that 
So if people have been listening to this podcast episode and now they have discovered that managing or owning a comic store is their dream job, um, <laughs> what, what steps do you think that they should take? Is that what we did? Did we spark a love in people of comics retail? Look, some people like pain. Some people enjoy suffering. Look at us. And there are people who really like comics. We will seriously talk with anybody that wants our opinion on opening a comic store. And all we can give you is, is our advice and our experiences. But we try to be as realistic, if not overly bleak, as possible. We are two grown adults who have been doing this together for 11 years. We're still waiting to make money. I mean, we survive. We have clothes and food. We're not really making money yet. Yeah, here's tip one. There's no money in comic books. Yeah. Um, so pretty much everyone in this industry, one way or another, um, the only reason you're doing it is because you love it and you can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, I, I, think I mean, I have to do it. I have comics tattooed across my knuckles, so I am <laughs> physically unable to work in any other job without getting some major ink work done. And, I, and I've been doing this more or less nonstop since I was 12 years old, so I don't think I'm wired to do anything else other than comics retail at this point. So I, I, that's, the, that's the thing, is if you're looking to open a comic shop, if you're looking to get into comics retail, because you think it's lucrative, it is not. And almost every comics retailer would tell you that. Even the ones who have done well for themselves financially can tell you stories about how many years it took for that to happen. And oftentimes the fluke events that led to them actually being successful. And I, I hope what we got across, especially in the early part of this podcast was this is a job. This is a lot of work. And there are two of us doing this full time to make a store that is well-respected and well-regarded on paper but not what you would call extremely financially viable. Yeah, there's there's so many people who who look at running a comic shop like retirement from real work, and God is at the opposite of that. Like we dream of having desk jobs. I had a desk job <laughs> once. It was so relaxing. Oh my God! <laughs> but then I came right back into this, so it didn't stick. For people who are looking to explore the idea of comics retail as a career. Uh, the shortest step to, to getting there is try and get a job at your local comic shop. There's not a ton of jobs at comic shops because, again, there's not a lot of money. So people who are looking to get paid and maybe, like, support themselves, harder to do that working at a comic shop. Just like somebody who wants to write and draw their own comic finds out they have to be their own sales team, their own marketing team, their own accountant, and their own tax analyst running a comic shop means that you have to be all of those things as well because it's a business. You have to know how to run a business. You have to know how to make decisions. You have to know how to how to handle money, how to hire people, how to train people, how to deal with alarm companies <laughs> or electricians or, you know, you're going to you're going to need to call in tradesmen at some points. So you have to know how to explain and get work done and also make sure that it's being done right and you're not being taken advantage of all because you really liked Spider-Man when you were growing up and you want to share that love with Spider-Man to somebody else. Yeah. Do you have a best and worst part of owning and running a comic store? Well, I think the best part would be getting to work most days with one of your very best friends and one of the best people you know. Oh, golly. Dale. Me? Uh, that is a good part. No, I'm, I was saying that for you. Oh, yeah, it's true. No, working <laughs> with me is one of the best parts of my job, for sure. Um, <laughs> no, uh, that, that said, it is worth noting that, that 
one of the advantages that Challengers has had as a comic shop is that there are two of us, um, not only to balance the workload, but to give different perspectives. So people who open a comic shop, one of the disadvantages is that they tend to have a very specific view of how things should be done and don't waver from that a whole lot, and that can cause problems for them long-term, their inability to be flexible, their inability to evolve their business. That's something that we've never suffered from. We're constantly, no pun intended, challenging each other on what our views of the store are, what our goals are, how we're going to achieve those goals. So it allows us to kind of take a second look at things in a way that if we either one of us ran the store solo, we would just assume that our instinct was correct and move forward and then find out later whether or not it was. Yeah, Dallinger's versus Pattinger's would be very different stores. It would, very different. To answer the question about best and worst, uh, for me, the, the best part of, of working in a comic shop is the ability to recommend something to someone, to have a discussion with something about a book, have them read it, and then have them come back and tell you they enjoyed it. Um, You're not using my answer? What's your answer? Working, working with, with me. Yeah. Yes. No, I mean, that's obviously... Me working with me is absolutely part of it. But no, I, I talked about how, I know, how I you're know. valuable to the business, and uh, I appreciate being a part no, of it. Uh, oh, you appreciate it. That's all you don't I like do. it. Um, but being able to you know, recommend something or, or affect someone's love of comics is one of the, the small things that the retailer can do in the kind of comics community. Um, that ability of, of introducing a work to someone is huge. And, and seeing that pay off where someone comes back, not just, you know, to buy books or whatever, but just because you recommended a book to them that means something to them personally, that they've enjoyed, that they might tell other people about that will be something that they take with them for, you know, the rest of their lives is huge. Like that ability to impact somebody. Because when they find a book they like, they take ownership of it and it becomes a part of them. You know that you sparked that and they know they can trust you yeah. when you recommend something else. Uh, the worst part of the job is having to talk about superhero movies forever. I was going to say the worst part of the job, oh my God. literally the worst part of the job is the people that don't value your time and are there just to be entertained by you when they're not buying anything. And they just want to talk about superhero movies. God damn, I like those movies and everything, don't get me wrong, but the amount of people who, like, their only experience with comic books is Marvel superhero movies, and they don't care about the Marvel superhero comic books, and they don't care about any of the comics that you're selling. But they, they all have fan theories. Yeah, everyone's, did you see the new Avengers trailer? Here's what I think is going to happen. Okay, great. So you're a captive audience, basically. Pretty much. A trapped audience, if you mean, if that's what you mean by captive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, for any retail, that's... We put conversation on the door. We're inviting people to come in and talk to us about stuff. But one, one joke that we kind of make is the science has comics and conversation, not comics or conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's both. It's not one or the other. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we are wrapping up our podcast. For... We're not bitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for this episode, unless there's more stuff that you want to talk about, we could talk about... Um, the problematic superhero movie conversation for more additional time, if you'd like. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you you two want to talk about that we missed? I was just going to say that no matter who you are or what you do, there's a comic book out there that you're going to love. You may not know what it is. You may not know that it exists. But, but we know what we it is. We do. <laughs> and we want to help you find it. And we want you to love comics as much as we love comics. And it's more important to us that you find it and you love it. You don't even have to get it from challengers. That'd be nice. But we just want you to understand why we value comics so highly and why we can't understand why they're so 
looked upon as childish by adults in this country when it's an international art form that's well-respected so well in so many other countries. Yeah, I guess the only thing I want to mention is that if everyone's not reading everything Tilly Walden does, they're missing out. Tilly Walden's amazing and maybe my favorite person working in comics right now. Everything's so good. Literally everything she does. She has no business being that good at that young age. Yeah, she's so good. So good. Uh Everyone in my office recently read On a Sunbeam and they were just like, this book. So obviously, like, the big books, your spinnings, your your On a Sunbeams, I love this part. Maybe my favorite book of 2018. Just so powerful. Yeah. She's fantastic. Her emotional storytelling is very, very Uh, excellent. Gina, we have a question for you. You're usually really good at telling me about things I've never heard of. So what's something you're reading right now that you love? Um, let's see. Now you're on the spot. I know. I I definitely am right on the spot. People do this to us all the time. They'll, They'll give us the, like, what's good right now? And I always have to look at the shelves because it's like, what is good? What did I read yesterday? I just read um, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, which is a kid's graphic novel that Little Brown put out. It's by uh, Ray Tercerio and Brie Indigo. They're they're putting out. It hasn't come out yeah, yet. Yeah, comic shops didn't get it yet anyway. I have a copy of it, but it might be an early copy or something like that. So I, it I is, you cheater. It. Sorry. Um, and so it's a modern retelling of Little Women. And it's very fun. It features a multiracial family and queer characters and kind of transposes this uh, four sisters getting along without their dad, trying to help their mom to Brooklyn. And uh, just like really cute, sweet story. Um, I also just read Sarah Grayley's upcoming Real reality meets online book from Scholastic Graphics about a girl who gets sucked into a video game uh, where she has to save the world, or does she? Uh, which features a lot of cats and possibly evil <laughs> robots and a friend meter. Oh man, that's great. We love Sarah Growley. Yeah. Uh, we're so jealous that everybody at Oni got uh, avatars drawn by her. Oh, cute. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going to bust in on. You're yeah, allowed, please. Recommend a book to us, Al. Well, I was going to say, I, I've been telling everybody to read uh, Kathy Johnson's uh, Breakaways when it comes out in March. It's a middle grade book about... Have you guys heard about this? No. First second publishes it. It's really, really good. It's about a team of middle school soccer players who are extremely bad at soccer. <laughs> also bad at being people, but get better at being people... They do not get better at being soccer players. <laughs> soccer players. And Kathy works with teenagers, so it feels very like grounded in the experience of actual kids in a way that a lot of, especially middle grade books, often aren't. doesn't have that tiny adult thing that a lot of books can do. Good. Um, and it's just really good. I definitely cried and then immediately shouted at Kathy about how it was great. Um, <laughs> I haven't read it yet, although Gina has. Everybody I know who's read Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, which is the new Mariko Tamaki and Rosemary Valero O'Connell book, Ooh. has basically been screaming nonstop about how it's amazing. So definitely keep an eye out for that. I haven't seen a graphic novel so universally shouted about since, frankly, on a sunbeam. Yes, people are wow. only shouting about it because they 
have stolen my coffee, Allie. That's, that's why you <laughs> is that, haven't been like, it hasn't been loaned to you. It got oh serially stolen by all the people office. at Penguin. Yeah, I know. Like, my friends who work at Penguin go to Gina's office and read it. Because it's not allowed to leave the building. <laughs> it has to stay in I the think, building. I think someone stole it. Um, oh, somebody actually stole it? Yeah. It's not in a locked briefcase chained to your arm right no. now? I mean, I guess it's a testament to the book, but goddamn, Gina... It's fine. I mean, it's an office. Like, how much personal ownership can you actually have over the things that are in it? (laughs) So, Patrick and Dal, you plugged your podcast earlier, but do you want to uh, plug it again? Tell people where they can find Challengers uh, in its physical location or (laughs) online or both? Give us all the info, please. Happy to do it. Sure. Yeah, you can find us online at challengerscomics.com. That's challengers with an S, comics with an S, dot com. Uh, you can find us in Chicago at 1845 Northwestern Avenue. That's in the Bucktown neighborhood of Chicago, uh, near the intersection of Western and Milwaukee, uh, right off the Western Blue Line stop. That's And this is because Chicago's dumb. There's two Western Avenue Blue Line stops. We are the northernmost one. <laughs> uh, we are all over social media. We are on Facebook at Challengers Comics. We're on Instagram at GoChallengersGo. We're on Twitter at Challengers. You know, we figured it's more fun to have a different handle for each different media. It's Why more not? fun that it's way. Like, it's like a game. We're, we're on YouTube at ChallengersRGo. That's the letter R and G-O. <laughs> Just to keep the everything is different pattern going. It's very hard to get Challengers as a social media handle. Also, so what is your podcast about? Uh, it is a comics industry business podcast where we talk about uh, the news of the week in the comics industry and how that affects what we do in the store as far as uh, merchandising, displaying, ordering, and a whole lot of bitching about retail. Yeah, occasionally we'll do stuff where we like review an upcoming comic, something that we've seen a preview of or something that just came out that we really like. But a lot of it is just going to be from the perspective of like the retailer, you know, how effective was this issue at getting people to read more of it? What was the promotional material like? Uh, how is it working with the publisher's larger plans? Or this is what retailers are complaining about this week. Yes. And oftentimes, just because it's the most popular segment, we do lead with how Patrick was frustrated that day at work. <laughs> yeah, we usually wind up recording them on days that I worked and Dal didn't. So I come brimming with... With access to grind. Yes. <laughs> and what's it called again? Contest of Challengers. Thank you. That name made sense to us uh, nine years ago when yeah, we started. It was a playoff of... There was a... A Marvel comic series called Contest of Champions. So yeah. we were called Challengers, so the joke was that we were a Contest of Challengers. But it doesn't make a lot of sense in general. In the very, very early days, it was supposed to be a point-counterpoint thing where we would each take a different side of a topic, but then it meant that often somebody would have to take a side contrary to what they actually believed. So we we scrapped that. And then it was interviews with customers because who cares what we have to say? Let's hear what the people who shop at us talk about what's and, their story and then we burned through all those uh, so <laughs> it's now it's business based for the most part Excellent. yeah which it seems like something we can speak to and that's we didn't want to do something that was just like comics reviews literally anyone can do that we anyone, don't have and does a better perspective on that than anyone who picks up a comic book but at least we can talk about retail well i think that's it for our episode thank you two so much for coming and doing this with us you are both delightful Thanks for having us. Anytime you have comic industry questions, we're you're welcome to ask us. Yeah. We will talk to you anytime. This was great. We really appreciate it. We'll make sure to message you on Facebook at uh, 3 in the morning. 3 a.m. Yes. Please do that. Yes. Perfect. 
Thanks for listening to Graphic Novel TK. In our next episode, we'll explore Comic Store's creative sister, the bookstore. I am extremely excited. Me too. They are extremely different. And we will learn how that is. Yes. Coming up soon. Bye. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com. It also, in the saying whatever you want, it is a swearing podcast. So if you feel like swearing, also feel free oh, to swear. That, I, that I do may, feel like swearing. That may be oh, hard, a hard door to close once that opens. Oh, oh golly. I don't bother closing it anymore, to be honest with you. Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll learn the exciting, you know, profanity-filled secrets of the comics retailing universe. Yeah, you guys are fine. And I, I run shit through a robot that fixes things anyway so don't oh worry great about it. okay so can it fix our answers too <laughs> unfortunately no you're on the hook for that we're monsters honestly that when i think complete ruthless asshole i think gina gugliano <laughs> oh yeah oh <laughs> just just brutal like be, talking to her is like being in a fist fight it's I know. just so gosh are we getting so is there a check made out to both of us or is it just one of us or is there like a I'll, doing, like, Venmo? Uh, I'm going to be at Venmo? C2E2 in March. I'll buy you a donut. Oh, you can yeah. share it. <laughs> One half of a donut. Best deal I've had all That's day. more than anybody else has gotten paid to be on this podcast. So. <laughs> We're always going to say yes to Gina because Gina's great at her job. Yeah, I mean, her, her constant request for kickbacks was a little unsettling, <laughs> but I, I think it's paid off. Yeah, I think I it's think been so. a good investment. I mean, it's worth it. Definitely yeah. worth it. I'm sorry, back up. I'm going to let Gina ask this. I accused her of forgetting sorry. it because I didn't read it. So, Gina, please ask the question that you definitely wrote on this piece of paper that I just... No, I just I asked it. <laughs> this was the last episode of Graphic Novel TK. I Did stop. You know? Gina's going to murder me now. <laughs>